Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, historians Eric Foner and Manisha Sinha discuss the vigilance that has been necessary to preserve hard-won civil rights throughout American history. Welcome all of you to our public program um, on the second founding, how the Civil War and Reconstruction remade the Constitution uh, by Eric Foner. So, of course, our guest, Eric Foner, is a preeminent um, uh, American historian, and you've already heard um, all the accolades that he has won. Uh, but I thought I would also introduce him today with um, a contemporary description of the radical Republican congressman, Thaddeus Stevens uh, of Pennsylvania during Reconstruction. And I just came across it, <laughs> so it struck me as very appropriate. Um, and the observer said... Uh, quote, at over 70 years of age, he was not attended with any perceptible abatement of the intellectual vivacity <laughs> or fire of youth. <laughs> so I thought it was an appropriate introduction. And this is, in fact, uh, a historical quote and can be verified. Um, so let me begin uh, with a question that I think most authors get. Um, you, Eric, have written already what is commonly called the Bible of Reconstruction. This is his big book on Reconstruction. Um, so what motivated you to write this book on the Reconstruction Constitutional Amendments? Uh, well, uh, before entering that, I just should say I'm very happy to be here back at the Historical Society and particularly to have Manisha Sinha as the um, interrogator today. Um, <laughs> She didn't quite mention it, but I supervised her doctoral dissertation at Columbia quite a few years ago now, and um, uh, she did get her PhD there. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, this is her chance to get back at me because uh, she was, I was on her orals exam, so now she has a chance to ask me questions. Why did I write this book? You know, um, it, you're right. Of course, I've written a lot about Reconstruction. I'm not a law scholar. I'm not a legal historian. I'm not a lawyer, although some of my best friends are. And um, the, um, I often write books because I get slightly annoyed about the way scholarship is developing uh, without going into earlier books. Uh, and in this case, uh, over the years, I became convinced, A, that our Supreme Court doesn't fully understand these, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and uh, has, uh, even in our own time, in the late 19th century, they really eviscerated them, but even in our own time, they have not used these amendments in the way they were intended to really try to combat racial injustice uh, in this society. So... Um, you know, why not just tell the Supreme Court they're all wrong and um, <laughs> maybe one or two of them will listen. Um, but, um, you know, so, so in that way, it's, it's sort of revisionist. But also, uh, there is a debate among historians about it, which I felt was going in a somewhat 
uh, uninteresting direction about, well, were these court decisions based on racism, on federalism, on both? And uh, there's a certain narrowness, that, that, without denigrating legal scholarship at all, it's very important, but there's a certain narrowness of vision where, um, you know, the, the, the evidence is always either speeches in Congress or maybe, um, you know, editorials in the New York Tribune or things like that, um, court decisions, but the sort of vast debate in Reconstruction about rights, about citizenship. You know, I quote Elizabeth Cady Stanton in the book saying, you know, that was a moment in our memoirs when all these issues were debated up and down the society, in the courts, in the pulpits, at every fireside, every fireside. You've got to bring ordinary Americans into this debate, particularly African Americans, whose voice is almost never heard in the Supreme Court uh, rulings or in a lot of the literature. So I just felt there was a sort of gap out there that uh, I would try to, um, <laughs> try to fill, I guess. Yeah, that's, um, you know, you, in the book, you, you talk about the Reconstruction Amendments as, quote, the lasting legacy of Reconstruction. Um, but we know, of course, that Reconstruction was that period after the war when an attempt was made to establish an interracial democracy in this country. And it was overthrown with a combination of racial terror, legal and political apathy, um, and reaction. Um, and so I was just wondering how you saw this, this, this concept that this was the lasting legacy when that period itself proved to be relatively short-lived. Yes, well, that, we often say with, you know, certainly a good <laughs> argument can be made that Reconstruction failed, you know. But, uh, and there's perfectly good evidence to say that. But if we start with that premise, and then work backward. Then what happens is historians work backward. Well, why did it fail? What, what was the problem? Maybe they should have given out land or, you know, they messed up on this thing. But we don't actually see that not, it didn't all fail. And the fact that these amendments were added to the Constitution and remained in the Constitution until today, they're still there, even though President Trump has sort of indicated he'd like to get rid of at least the first sentence of the 14th Amendment. Yeah. Um, uh, is a sign that not, you know, that impulse toward an interracial democracy didn't totally fail. And many other things, you know, obviously Reconstruction's about many things other than constitutional issues, although most of those things get discussed in constitutional terms at one point or another. Um, but, you know, many other things, the establishment of black educational institutions, they survived, they didn't all fail. They still have black colleges today, which were founded in Reconstruction. The black church becomes a really major institution in Reconstruction and the center of those communities. Um, and as, you know, W.B. Du Bois said years ago in Black Reconstruction in America, the very idea of an interracial democracy survived, even though the implementation of it didn't, to inspire subsequent struggles. Mm -hmm. um, that's why the civil rights era was sometimes called the Second Reconstruction, because the issues on the agenda right after the Civil War kind of came back. But I think the constitutional amendments are important, even though they were kind of nullified in many ways uh, around the turn of the, that century. Um, the fact that they were there and usable was, you know, really determined the legal strategy of the civil rights uh, revolution. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I don't like the term failure. I, I always like to say Reconstruction was overthrown. Right. Because there was a real campaign to, to overthrow mm -hmm. it, of course. Um, 
so you also see, visualize the spirit as the sort of the second founding. That's the title of the book. Um, and that has to do with these constitutional amendments um, and the ways in which uh, black citizenship is actually a touchstone of this new founding mm -hmm. uh, moment. Um, and I'm going to sort of go back and look at those three specific amendments uh, that you discuss in the book, of course. Um, and I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit about something that uh, has garnered a lot of attention uh, recently, and that is the criminal exception right. uh, in the 13th Amendment. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how this exception became part of the amendment right. um, and its tragic, if unforeseen, um, right. consequences? Yeah. Um, let me just uh, take out my constitution here. And... Um, <laughs> 13th Amendment, um, just what is Manisha talking about? Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, shall exist in the United States. Involuntary servitude can continue for people convicted of a crime. Where did that come from? I wondered about that. The first thing that's interesting is nobody, no, there's a lot of literature on the 13th Amendment. Nobody has written about this. There's books on the 13th Amendment that don't even mention it in the slightest. But that's not so surprising. It wasn't mentioned in Congress, hardly. Charles Sumner said one or two things. That was about it. The press debate about the 13th Amendment said virtually nothing about uh, the dangers involved in allowing in servitude for those who had been convicted of a crime. Um, so where did it come from? Well, the language, as was widely you know, declared, came from the Northwest Ordinance, written by Thomas Jefferson, and it had migrated there from Jefferson's Land Ordinance of 1784, which wasn't enacted, but would have barred slavery in all the U.S. territories at that time. So where did Jefferson, why did Jefferson put it in there? Well, I called up a couple of my good friends who were Jefferson scholars, Peter Onuf, who you know, who went to graduate school with me, and Alan Taylor, and I said, why did Jefferson put that in? And they both gave the same answer. I haven't the slightest idea. <laughs> um, and we don't actually know. But the real point is it had become kind of boilerplate language. The thing that no, people have never mentioned is every northern state that barred slavery included that phrase. They took it. So it was familiar language. The Wilmot Proviso, banning slavery in territories acquired from Mexico in the Mexican War, included that criminal exemption. The, it, this has become kind of get a lot of attention because there was this documentary, 13th, a few years ago. Uh, that sort of had a slightly conspiratorial edge that this was sort of put in there in order to anticipate mass incarceration. No, they didn't. There were no hardly any prisons back then. There were hardly any prisoners. This was not supposed to be the basis of a giant system, but it did create this unfortunate loophole, which later, after the end of Reconstruction, southern states created this giant convict labor system, as you know, where people, mostly black, not all, but mostly black, were convicted of petty, you know, stealing a chicken, and they're sentenced to eight years in the penitentiary, and then they are leased out to work on a plantation or a railroad or a mine, and it became a hor horrifying system. You know, uh, one of the books about this is called Worse Than Slavery, you know, because the conditions were so horrible. And the courts always said, this is allowable because the 13th Amendment has that criminal exemption. So one of the points <laughs> worth thinking about is, you know, a lot of people talk about 
original meaning, original intent, a conservative view of how to interpret the Constitution. But here you have an unintended consequence. Nobody anticipated what would happen that has really undermined some of the purposes, really, of the 13th Amendment. Yeah. And I think that's one of the really important and valuable contributions of this book, to, to look at this exception as something that was customary and that no one thought about, uh, that there was no conspiracy to undermine black freedom, but that southern states they and southern it. politicians saw that loophole and they worked it. And it's important to get that history right, I think, right. because, you right. know, um, we live in a time when conspiracy theories are rife. Yes. Uh, and so it's probably good to, <laughs> to have our facts straight right. uh, on that. Um, so you, of course, uh, argue in this book and have argued earlier too that the 14th Amendment is the most consequential uh, Reconstruction Amendment. And I would like you to talk more about that, uh, especially given the fact, as you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. that Trump and some others want to revoke its uh, provision of national birthright citizenship. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, one point I want to make uh, to start with is that um, Professor Sinha here in her uh, book, a great book on the abolitionist movement, I quote you, as you probably noticed in there, where she says abolitionists hitched their star or whatever to black citizenship. Mm -hmm. That was a crucial question coming out of the Civil War. Were slaves, of course, were not citizens. What about free African Americans? White people born in the country were deemed to be citizens before the Civil War. There was little question about that. What their rights as citizens were was <laughs> unclear. But what about free African Americans? And it was very murky. Some states, like Massachusetts, recognized African Americans as citizens of the state. Many states did not. The federal government usually didn't. Sometimes it did. But then the Dred Scott decision in 1857 said, no, citizenship is for white people. No black person can be a citizen of the United States. That was the law of the land when the Civil War took place. But with the freeing of four million slaves, the service of black soldiers in the Civil War, um, that question is on the agenda. And the first sentence of the 14th Amendment says, yeah, anybody born in the United States is a citizen. Um, and that with no racial qualification whatsoever. In fact, no qualification. In other words, any religion, any race, any background, and relevant today, it's, it has nothing to do with the status of your parents, right? Because the debate today, well, a, a, an undocumented immigrant woman who gives birth to a child in the United States, what is the status of that child? Well, it's very clear. They're born in the United States. They're a citizen. They're, the fact that their mother may have committed a crime of some kind is irrelevant. Be the, the mother could be a bank robber. That wouldn't uh, mean that the child can't be a citizen. But, um, but the 14th Amendment goes way beyond that. Um, it, first of all, it's, a long, it's the longest amendment ever added to the Constitution. It's got all sorts of convoluted provisions. Some of them are of no particular relevance today, like the Confederate debt can't be repaid, you know, and there will never be. They put in, we talk about reparations today, yeah. they put in the 14th Amendment, there's never going to be any payment to the owners, because they were demanding reparations for the loss of their property, but the 14th, no, no one's going to get paid for the loss of their property in slaves, and other provisions you know about. But the the first section is the key, of course, which first creates this birthright citizenship and then says that states cannot deny, cannot deprive any citizen of the privileges or immunities of citizens, whatever those are, it doesn't tell you. 
And then that no person, that's more than a citizen, that's anybody, not just citizens, non-citizens, have to be accorded the equal protection of the law. That is the sort of pivot of the 14th Amendment, equal protection. And uh, the notion of equality is so deeply ingrained in the United States, at least in our ideology, that um, we may not realize there was no such thing before the Civil War. There were no laws establishing equality among different kinds of citizens. The common law was based on inequality, up and down, employer, employee, male, female, all inequality. Uh, the word equal is not in the original Constitution, except for um, uh, talking about what happens if uh, two candidates get an equal number of electoral votes. Um, so this notion of equal protection, and it's not racial. There is no ra This applies to everybody. And the fact that the language is non-racial has allowed in the 20th century the expansion of equality to all sorts of groups, most recently, famously, uh, gay marriage. That's a 14th Amendment decision. Equal protection. If straight people have a legal right to marry, so should gay people. That, obviously, that wasn't on the mind of the people who wrote the 14th Amendment, <laughs> but it's a totally logical use of the 14th Amendment. Ruth Bader Ginsburg... Uh, used it to attack laws discriminating on the basis of, of gender, equal protection. So that, you know, that, it, that's why I call it the second founding, because you have a new constitution after these three amendments. It's not, and uh, in a way I'd say that because one of the re another reason I wrote this book is that even though those amendments are so important, most people don't know much about them. If you ask your man or woman in the street, what are the key documents of American history, you know, they'll say the Bill of Rights or the Emancipation Proclamation. They were not going to mention the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And the people who wrote them, John Bingham is hardly a household name, right? In fact, in his hometown in Ohio, there is no statue of John Bingham or any recognition of John Bingham. And yet he was more responsible than almost anyone for rewriting the Constitution of the United States. Absolutely, and he's the one who... Uh, gave the first 10 amendments the moniker Bill of Rights. Right. So you should know this guy. Right. Uh, right. right. And, uh, and you're right. I mean, in a way, uh, I think um, the, the sort of legacy of the 14th Amendment and the ways in which it has been used to expand rights for a lot of people has really vindicated even Sumner's vision that this was kind of a sleeping giant in right. the Constitution. Right. Um, the, the irony and, is, at least mm -hmm. I argue, is, you know, that it has enormously expanded the rights of every American. And yet, when it comes to race, racial equality, really in the last two generations, since Nixon began filling the Supreme Court with conservatives and adopting his Southern strategy, um, the court has whittled away at the use of the 14th Amendment. Uh, you know, they're more attuned to what they call rever reverse discrimination, the possible... Uh, you know, the, the white people somehow losing something when African-Americans are given, uh, uh, you know, protection. Um, and so, you know, it, it, there's this vast expansion and yet narrowing at the same time when it comes to what was really on the mind of the people who were debating this in Congress in 1866. Yeah, and, you know, I just to follow up a little bit on that, um, you know, if there is a villain in this... Uh, history of the Reconstruction constitutional amendments is the Supreme Court, right. right? And you talked about it a little earlier. There are a lot of villains uh, <laughs> in the Reconstruction story. You the know, Klansmen, white supremacists, right. Andrew Johnson, right. miss being impeached by one vote. Right. Um, 
But uh, can you talk a little bit more about the Supreme Court's role in, as you put it, whittling down and kind of eviscerating right. uh, the Reconstruction Amendments and laws? Right. Well, another, <laughs> another thing I uh, wanted to do with this book was to, you know, in a way, allude to the present, because all these issues, citizenship, the right to vote, terrorism, these are issues of our moment. They're not just 150 years old. Um, so I'm alluding to the present. I'm not writing a commentary on today. But one of the things I want people to think about, what happens to your rights when you have a conservative Supreme Court? What can happen to them? And what happened to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments really starting in Reconstruction with the Slaughterhouse decision and then going all the way into the early 20th century is a, you know, warning that rights in the Constitution are not self-enforcing and that if you have a hostile Supreme Court, uh, they can do tremendous damage to the expansion of liberty that this engaged. Why did the Supreme Court do that? I would say among historians, the most common explanation is the simple explanation that well, public opinion, you know, the Supreme Court follows public opinion. Public opinion in the North was shifting away from uh, the egalitarianism of Reconstruction, um, et cetera. So you don't blame them. They just do it. But, you know, one of the things that surprised me is I don't think that's really true. Many of these decisions were vigorously denounced by Republican leaders, by the Republican press. We historians have an unfortunate tendency that we like to, like, cite people who are like us, educated and articulate, you know what I mean? Uh, so you get a lot of quotes from the Chicago Tribune, the New York Tribune, the, the so-called liberal Republicans who washed their hands of Reconstruction, and they didn't like any of these measures that the court is... They thought the court was doing the right thing. But, the, but if you go to mainstream Republican newspapers, which may not have been edited by college-educated people, they were all aghast at some of these decisions. Some of them they called a new Dred Scott decision, you know? So I don't think you can let the Supreme Court off, off the hook by saying they're following public opinion. So what is it? Well, I mean, you have to look at who they are. You know, most of these Supreme Court justices are, um, you know, they're, they're railroad attorneys, they're admiralty law attorneys, they're people who had, very few of them had any contact with the anti-slavery movement, really, or any contact with black Americans. The most radical of them, Simon P. Chase, died, you know, early in Reconstruction. Um, John Marshall Harlan, the only one of them who ever owned a slave, becomes the, the great dissenter on these things. But most of them are just, you know, these are not issues of great importance to them, fundamentally. Uh, they're much more interested in the rights of corporations, you know, which they start using the 14th Amendment to defend. They're much more interested in maintaining the balance between the states and the federal government and the federal system. So, um, you know, I just think they're going down the wrong path. But another point I think I make that very important, there were other jurisprudences being proposed at that very time. It's not like the Supreme Court chose the only available path. There were other people putting forward, black and white, putting forward very strong critiques of Supreme Court jurisprudence, which was not listened to. But that juris those ideas are still out there. And if we get a better Supreme Court one of these days, what I would like to see them do, if any of the justices are here, um, <laughs> what I would like to see them do is have the, you know, the gumption to say, we've been pretty much wrong for the last 75 years. <laughs> uh, and um, let's start again. 
they don't tend to do that, but right. that would be intellectually honest. Right. There's this whole question of legal precedent right. and jurisprudence that people strictly adhere to, the sort of formal parameters of what the profession is Well, they, they, about, they right? adhere to precedent just, until yeah. they don't like precedent, and then they don't adhere to it, you know? Exactly. I mean, many of the Supreme Court's decisions lately have had nothing to do with precedent. The Holder versus Shelby, Shelby County, where they right. sort of eviscerated the Voting Rights Act of... Uh, 1965, that threw over all sorts of precedents. But um, so, you know, I don't believe them when they say we just got to go with precedent. If they don't like the precedent, they find other ways to uh, get around it. Yeah, so they're living up to their historic role of eviscerating so. uh, these laws. Um, and what's really interesting, and you mentioned this, is how they use the due process clause, which was designed to protect the rights of free people. Uh, to protect actually railroads and corporations right. from government regulation during right. the Gilded Age. So it was well, a complete... Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, no, that, uh, that Roscoe Conkling, one of our New York, you know, major New York politicians, U.S. senator, uh, uh, he was on the, uh, on the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, which drafted the 14th Amendment, um, in, in a railroad case in, 18, in the 1880s, Santa Clara case, he... Um, this had to do with whether counties have a right to tax railroads, and they said, no, no, uh, we are the corporate personhood. We, we, we have the same rights under due process, et cetera. The 14th Amendment protects us. And Roscoe Conkley said to the court, look, I've got the, um, I've got the journal of the Joint Committee right here. I was on that committee. And if you read this journal, you will see that corporations were intended to be protected by the 14th Amendment. And the justices said, oh, that's pretty good evidence. Look at that, Roscoe Conkling. Well, Roscoe Conkley dies. Actually, he died because he fell into a snowdrift in the blizzard of 88. Yeah. A little footnote. Um, <laughs> he did. But later on, the, uh, the, um, the journal is published by Kendrick in, like, 1914, and there's not a word about corporations in it. Yeah. Not a single word. Conkling just... Uh, we have seen political leaders just make things up all the time. <laughs> this is a great American tradition. <laughs> Yes, I guess this is where we get the notion that corporations are people, right? And it's, yeah. Now, you know, the notion of corporate personhood obviously has a long history in law, but the constitutionalization of that, which has built even more lately, you know, with the Citizens United, now they've got freedom of speech. You know, the idea that corporations have the same basic civil liberties as normal human beings uh, is certainly not what was intended by the people who put the 14th Amendment together. No, certainly not. Um, so there was another thing about the 14th Amendment which is really interesting, is that it introduces the word male into the U.S. Constitution. And then, of course, the 15th right. Amendment enfranchises adult black men. Right. Um, and this leads to a fissure in the women's movement right. with some abolitionist feminists supporting the 14th and 15th Amendments and others like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Anthony actually opposing it. Um, so you have this moment of progressive constitutionalism where rights expand and sometimes they're constricted for others. Right. And I was wondering whether that would make you reevaluate uh, this, this sort of constitutional moment. Yeah, um, well, the, the, it, it, it is very important that the rights of women were given no consideration. Uh, although, well, the 13th Amendment liberated slave women as well as slave men. That has no gender distinction, obviously. Mm -hmm. But um, 
Yes, in the 14th Amendment, Section 2, you have the word male, the, a gender distinction put into the Constitution for the first time. The original Constitution doesn't say uh, freedom of speech is only for men or anything like that, you know. Um, and that's in this convoluted clause about, which is a compromise, about what happens if the southern states don't give black men the right to vote. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's all complicated, but the base of the bottom line is, if they don't, they're going to lose some of their congressmen as a result. In other words, Mississippi, let's say, was 50% black, 50% white. If they didn't give black men the right to vote, they would lose 50% of their representative congress. If they deny any group of men or male citizens the right to vote, in other words, they can deny women the right to vote with no political penalty. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact is, no state allowed women to vote at that moment. But still, the Stanton, Anthony, and the others were quite outraged at putting that, because that seemed to sort of put in the Constitution the notion of the political inferiority of women. And then the 15th Amendment, as you say, led to even more vitriolic uh, debates, splitting the women's movement. It's not that all the women went one way. Some of them said, no, the 15th Amendment is a step forward. Black men are now getting the right to vote. Now we've got to fight for an amendment giving women the right to vote. But others refused to support it on the grounds that it was cre creating another barrier. The 15th Amendment says that um, no citizen of the United States can be denied the right to vote because of race. It doesn't actually say anything about women or men, because of race. So African-American people can no longer be denied the right to vote. But other limitations are not barred, including, of course, sex. So states can continue to deny women the right to vote, as they did, without any a penalty or without the 15th Amendment having any application to that. Right. Um, now, that language, you know, th that they did debate this very strongly, and the general consensus of Republicans was we'll never get a woman's suffrage amendment ratified. Mm -hmm. We have this opening to give black men the right to vote, but if we try to, if we add, let's say, sex, you cannot deny a person the right to vote because of race or sex, the amendment will never be passed. Mm -hmm. Um, probably that was true. On the other hand, the radicals' brand name was standing up for principle, right? So uh, even Wendell Phillips, you know, you, you know this, uh, wrote a letter to members of Congress saying, for the first time in my life, I urge you to be politicians, not idealists. But if Wendell Phillips is not an idealist, what, what is his job? You know, that, this is what Wendell Phillips is supposed to do. That's his entire life. Suddenly, I'm no longer an idealist. I'm just going for what's practical. Well, they would never have gotten anything accomplished if that had been their attitude. So, you know, it's a complicated thing. The best epitaph on this was by Lucy Stone, at one of these, where she said, both are right. <laughs> <laughs> both are right, and unfortunately, that doesn't give us an answer to what ought to be done. Right. Uh, and and the, the, the other clause that you mentioned earlier about... Uh, restricting representation in Congress if you deny right. the right to vote to adult male citizens, that clause was never triggered. Never, never enforced. In fact, never. in my book, there's a little cartoon yeah. which shows early, 19, early 20th century, which shows Congress asleep and this second clause there. And why is Congress not... Once African-American men did lose the right to vote in the South, Southern states should have lost a lot of their congressional... By the way, that's still in... It's supposed to be automatic... But it didn't happen. In fact, today, as you know, there are voter suppression laws in many states. 
I believe that Texas should lose a member of Congress because of the second section. I'm going to start a movement to deprive Texas of one of their congressmen <laughs> because, because they have some of these voter suppression laws which have limited the number of people voting. And if you just get up to, you know, they got a lot of congressmen, I don't know, 30 or something. So all you need to do is get up to 3% denied the right to vote, and they should lose one of their 30 congressmen. So I let's get Bernie on the case here. Absolutely. Hopefully he, you know, wishing him a speedy recovery. Um, you know, there are a lot of these tenthers in, in Texas. A lot of Reser these... They're called tenthers. They believe in the Tenth Amendment, oh, the reserve oh. rights of the state to secede. From the union, so maybe we'll begin a movement called 14 thirds. <laughs> so if you deny the right to vote to someone, right. you know you will suffer in the your congressional. Yeah, exactly. I, it should be enforced, absolutely. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of uh, very good historians, uh, some of whom are also law professors. Dare I say, uh, <laughs> who argue that you know Reconstruction would have succeeded only through a prolonged military occupation and through martial law in the South. Uh, and this sort of argument, I think, goes against uh, um, the argument that you're making about valuing this expansion in rights and in the Constitution. What do you make of it? Well, it, it, it's not 100% uh, different from what I argue. I mean, I'm, I'm arguing that these rights have to be enforced by somebody. Now, all three of those amendments say Congress shall have the power to... Inf they didn't actually expect the Supreme Court to do a lot with these amendments. They thought it was Congress's job, and they did, as you know, pass those Enforcement Acts, right. the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. They passed Civil Rights Acts, which the court began striking down. Um, so, but yes, there needed to be enforcement, and as this wave of terrorism, Ku Klux Klan and similar groups sweeps over the South. At first, you know, President Grant did send troops into South Carolina and crush the Klan. You can do that if you're willing to use, you know, harsh measures. Um, but as time goes on, that becomes less and less politically viable, it seems. So, you know, I, I'm not that interested in, you know, imaginary scenarios. Yeah, let's imagine... By the way, that's what the, George Julian said, right, with the Reconstruction Act. He said, let's reduce them to military rule for like 30 years. Then we can really remake the society and get... Well, they weren't ready for 30 years of military occupation in the South. But, um, you know, a, a scenario of what would have happened if more troops were sent or... I don't know. I mean... Uh, but it's certainly the way, certainly the way the court operated, and the way the the fact that the Democratic Party comes back and becomes, you know, powerful nationally means that federal enforcement becomes harder and harder. Once the Democrats win control of the House of Representatives in 1874, you have a period of like 25 years, almost up to 1896, where no party controls both the presidency and the uh, two houses of Congress at the same time, except for a very brief period of time. And so it's, it's like today, divided government, and it's impossible to get anything accomplished. So, you know, one can say, yeah, you, there should have been more enforcement. I agree. But, um, you know, another way the non-legal historians say, no, there should have been land distribution, right? That's what Stevens said. Take away the land of the planter class and distribute it in 40-acre plots to the uh, for former slaves, and then you will really begin to create the economic foundation for these rights. So, 
you know, there's a lot of what ifs, but um, we've got enough trouble figuring out what did happen to, exactly. <laughs> to try to work out a scenario of what didn't happen. Yes, I, you know, that certainly is one of those counterfactuals mm -hmm. uh, of American history that people argue about. And maybe we shouldn't be talking about that <laughs> and talk about what actually happened. Um, uh, you know, um, in your sort of really long and productive academic career, right, many books, the one thing that I've noticed is that you have always unearthed some new piece of evidence. <laughs> I mean, it's never just the same story. And in this book, you have discovered this fascinating organization of black lawyers in Baltimore, right? The Brotherhood of Liberty. And the book they published in 1889, uh, Justice and Jurisprudence. So tell us a little bit about how you found this book <laughs> and why you chose to end your book uh, with a discussion of this group right. uh, and their jurisprudence. Right. Uh, yes, the brother. Well, I found I heard about the governor of liberty in the way you and I and others do research. I was reading somebody publishing a, a professor at Howard years ago published an article about them, mm -hmm. and I just happened to stumble upon it. I don't claim any great insight in finding it, but I got very fascinated, and then um, uh, I, I tried to find the book. Well, yeah, the book is actually in the Columbia Law Library, and in fact, a paperback edition of it reprint of it was put out, I don't know, 20 years ago or something. But um, wh why am I interested in it? Because there's a kind of an argument that, you know, oh, if you, you know, people like me who say the Supreme Court should be thinking about these amendments in other ways, we are imposing modern views on the past. You know, we're taking our, you can't, it, it's the same thing they say about, you know, like, uh, should Jefferson have freed his slaves. Well, you can't take modern views and put it back there, even though there are a lot of people who did free their slaves when Jefferson was around. That wasn't such an unusual idea. But um, their view of the 14th and 15th Amendments and the 13th as barring, like, discrimination in the labor market, barring, you know, opening up all kinds of public accommodations to African-Americans, you know, that the rights of citizens are really expansive and robust and should be enforced. That is 1880s. That is not today. So when I say that, that's the way the Supreme Court ought to be thinking. I'm drawing on what people at the time were saying, not just throwing my current views back a uh, hundred and some odd years to say, oh, well, how come they weren't thinking like I am today? No. There were people there with what I think much better understanding of the, these amendments than the Supreme Court actually had. It just happens that they didn't have any power. You know, the question of interpretation is fundamentally one of power. Who has the power to determine what that language means? And unfortunately, uh, people like the Brotherhood of Liberty put forward a, very, a long book, 600-page critique, but they didn't have the power to see it enforced, but it's still out there. Mm -hmm. It can be rediscovered, and maybe one of these days it will be. Great. So I think my time here is <laughs> up, it seems. Uh, we do have a number of questions uh, posed by our audience, uh, and, and the first one is actually really quite interesting. Um, uh, for better or worse, uh, do you foresee a third founding? <laughs> well, um, the Reverend William Barber, who is fighting a very good battle in North Carolina against a completely retrograde uh, state government there, except for the governor now, but in general, you know, um, uh, 
has recently published a book called The Third Reconstruction. Not a third founding exactly, but we need a third reconstruction. The first one was after the Civil War, the second one the Civil Rights era. We need a third one, but more focused on economic inequality than constitutional rights. Um, you know, uh, what's, what's interesting is that the civil rights revolution did not need or require or implement any significant change in the Constitution. Unlike in South Africa, when apartheid ended, they had to write a whole new Constitution, right? They had an apartheid Constitution. They chucked it out. We didn't chuck out our Constitution. It was there. We finally got it enforced to some degree as a result of many people in the streets demanding that. So do we need a new refounding of the Constitution, or do we need a more vigorous, robust understanding of what, what is latent in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, um, which people like the Brotherhood of Liberty or John Marshall Harlan put forward back then, um, whether you might call that a third founding if we completely reinterpret what these things mean, but um, I, I think we should do more with what we've got than worry about a new founding. Absolutely. I mean, at the very least, uh, enforce the Reconstruction Amendments, I would mm -hmm. say, about time. Mm -hmm. um, so here's another interesting question. Uh, you have written multiple books and devoted your career to the study of Reconstruction. How has your understanding and analysis of Reconstruction changed or evolved over your distinguished career from the first to present book? <laughs> well, uh, uh, sadly, uh, even after I published my book in 1988 or something, uh, scholars kept finding new things about Reconstruction. <laughs> no book of history is the final word. We know that. And uh, the fate of all historians is to be superseded eventually, right? Um, so uh, I, I think that what's in, what interests me in the work of younger scholars, such as Professor Sinha and many, many others, uh, is th the way in which sort of the cast of characters of Reconstruction has expanded, like women, gender, and what, what was the impact of the end of slavery on women, white and black, north and south. I didn't do much with that, uh, admittedly, in my book. The literature on that was pretty thin when I was writing. Now it's burgeoned. Um, Professor Sin is too modest to mention this, but she's writing a book now called The Greater Reconstruction, or at least that's a theme. I don't know if that's the title. But that people have expanded the parameters of Reconstruction. They include the West, Native Americans, uh, what was happening, Chinese, the whole... If you're thinking of an interracial democracy, obviously the fate of the former slaves is crucial, but there are many other groups whose citizenship status was being debated at the same time. Uh, that's a very fruitful uh, addition. Uh, some people are even uh, are expanding Reconstruction in time forward. Did it really end in 1877? That's the convention. That's when my book ends. Uh, but, um, you know, some people say, I should go to 1890 or 1900 or some other date. Um, because these issues didn't go away, and history never just ends at one moment. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of new work, which I think is, is good. I would say, maybe I'm uh, patting myself on the back too much, I, I think my book, as I say, is not the last word, but it's still the latest word for those who want a, a narrative history of the whole period. In other words, people have pieced together new elements or new insights, but they haven't 
merge them into a coherent new vision of what happened altogether in Reconstruction. So somebody will do that soon, I'm sure. I, but uh, I th I, so my, the overall conceptualization basically, I think, still holds, even though there's been a lot of work on very specific elements of Reconstruction. Yes, I don't think there is an alternative synthesis to, to that book. Um, here's a, another interesting question. Uh, given the economic disparities that exist between northern and southern states, is it fair to say that Reconstruction never really ended? <laughs> I do say Reconstruction never ended uh, in somewhere in my book in, in that the issues of Reconstruction are still dividing our society, citizenship, voting rights, uh, things like that. Uh, I'm not sure if this uh, question writer is talking about economic disparities today or just generally, historically. Um, but certainly, um, you know, sadly, if you look at... It's correct. If you look at the indices of uh, social and economic progress, whether it's uh, health care, you know, or education levels or life expectancy... Uh, the former slave states are still at the bottom of the list. Mm -hmm. And in a, that's true in many countries, actually, right? That's true throughout the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Slavery the, casts a very long shadow mm -hmm. onto the present. And it somehow warped these societies in ways that they still can't fully uh, escape from, you know? And, um, I mean, I remember when I taught, you, you know, long ago, I taught as a visiting professor at the University of South Carolina... Uh, they used to say, well, South Carolina's got problems, but thank God for Mississippi. We're, <laughs> we're, number, we're number 49 on all these things, you know? But, uh, but yeah, it's so, in a way, the, if Reconstruction, the element of Reconstruction that meant reuniting the nation once the Civil War was over, uh, that has never quite happened either, at least on a basis of regional equality. So it's an interesting question. Yeah, and in fact, the, the subtitle of your book was Unfinished Revolution. Unfinished Revolution. Absolutely. Right. So this question actually follows up on that quite nicely too. Uh, do you think schools, libraries, and other institutions have a responsibility to remove or change dedications to Confederate leaders? For example, sports teams, building names, etc.? Yeah, well, um, this is a big debate, of course. I, I, before I came here tonight, I stopped over at the New York, uh, the uh, Museum of Natural History, mm -hmm. uh, where, as some of you know, they have that controversial statue, not a Confederate, <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt, and an African and a Native American. Uh, and then I instead of taking it down, they've set up a whole thing indoors where people can comment, and they have a whole range of comments on this, and I wanted to see how that worked. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we have never quite reckoned with the reality of the old Confederacy. You know, this was a, despite what many people still think, this was a rebellion in the name of creating a slave-owning republic. That's what it was. That's what they said it was. I mean, they weren't trying to beat about the bush. They absolutely said, we're trying to protect slavery here, folks. That's why we're going to war. Um, and, uh, you know, so... It, it, I'm sympathetic to people who don't, you know, like at Mississippi where they have, you know, Johnny Reb, their mascot, the guy who leads cheers is no longer a Johnny Reb in a Confederate uniform. I think he's now a brown bear or something. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I certainly, you know, I'm not saying take down every single statue of a Confederate anywhere. That's an important part of the history of these regions, but 
Right now, the presentation of history is totally one-dimensional. Mm -hmm. Where are the statues of the black leaders of Reconstruction? They're part of Southern history. Why, why? I mean, we know, again, if interpretation is a matter of power, so is deciding who gets a statue. And this is a statement of power, not just of history. Um, why are there no statues of uh, white Southerners who supported the Union? There were plenty of them, too, you know? Um, James, you know, James Longstreet, a major general, could not get a statue at Gettysburg until very recently. Because, why? Not because of bad generalship, but because after the Civil War, he supported black rights. Mm -hmm. He joined the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And that made him persona non grata, and we don't want to have a statue of Longstreet, even though he was Lee's right-hand man at Gettysburg. So I, I think there needs to be a reckoning. Not, I'm not saying we should punish anybody. I mean, you know, there's no one alive today who owned a slave back then. Uh, but we never went through what South Africa did, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where people actually confronted head-on the reality of the history of this era. So, um, you know, debating about statues and mascots and team names and all that would be salutary, I think. Absolutely. And now um, there is an installation by Kahindi Wiley, Wiley right here in the city, right? A new monument. Oh, I just saw that to today. Be, I, this yeah, was my tour to. before I, I went to, the, uh, <laughs> right. to Times Square right. with the very impressive... I recommend it, 47th Street, Times Square, the statue of the man on horse, the black, young black guy on horseback, right. which is sort of a commentary on all those statues in, in Richmond, Virginia, on Monument Avenue Absolutely. of all the uh, Confederate uh, generals, right. Yeah. And eventually it's going to be moved It's there. going to be moved to Richmond, right. yeah. Right. right, So here's another question. Um, I think we do have time. Uh, simultaneous to reconstruction efforts, the U.S. government was actively pursuing westward expansion of the country and resettling people and directing resources to territories west of the Mississippi. Did this blunt Reconstruction's potential? Um, I, I don't know if it blunted the potential. It is true that a lot of investment money, if you want to look at it that way, that might have gone in to help rebuild the South actually went into the West in mining and lumbering and other railroad construction. Um, uh, you know, no, no, capitalists don't want to invest in a place where the government is insecure, where people are riding around massacring other people, you know, and... Uh, in in the in the West, things well, we talk about the Wild West. It was not nearly as wild as some aspects of Reconstruction, given the terrorism going on. Um, you know, some people say well, there should have been a Marshall Plan. You know, if you really wanted to boost up the South, black and white. But uh, you know, the Northerners had paid a lot of money for the Civil War. They weren't that interested in digging into their pockets and pouring more money into the South. So, yeah, westward expansion is going on. That's part of the greater Reconstruction. Uh, and it is diverting resources, maybe, that might have been uh, directed to the South. But after Reconstruction, you didn't get a giant flow of, re of, re of money into the South. And what you did was just buying up Southern railroads, Southern factories, until the South became what, you know, C. Van Woodward said, you know, a colonial economy. The South was just absorbed into the national uh, um, economy as a second-rate region, you know, and... That lasted a long time. In, 19, in the 30s, you know, Franklin D. Roosevelt said the South is the number one economic problem right. of the nation. 
And African Americans who were at the bottom of the poorest part of the nation suffered the most, of course, from this, but a lot of white people also suffered economically, whereas the, the well-to-do plantation merchant elite, which had helped to overthrow Reconstruction, they did pretty well for themselves, but most Southerners didn't. Yeah, so they were colonial, but, but local elites were the yeah. one who made that decision, I think, right. to, to make the South the nation's number one economic problem while they enjoyed right. political power at they, home. They, right. right, because if to really develop the South, you would have had to crack the Jim Crow system, you would have had to allow African Americans the, uh, real economic uh, opportunities, you would have had to have education uh, for them and for poorer whites. They didn't want to pay the bill. The planters did not want to pay the bill for actual modernization of their society. Absolutely. Um, so here's a question drawn from today's or yesterday's headlines. Yesterday's New York Times editorial heading was Why Trump Tweeted About Civil War. Yes. How would you compare the nation's political climate at time of the Civil War as compared to today's political climate? Well... Um, first of all, let me say that I uh, do not follow the tweets of the president. Uh, in fact, I'm not even on Twitter, so I couldn't. I don't even follow Manisha's tweets. But, um, and I have no interest in what the president says, actually, because, uh, no, really, I, it, it's, it's all so ridiculous. Uh, I don't spend all my time agonizing over it. But, you know, to, so to invoke the Civil War, I think uh, the president is throwing things at a wall and seeing what will stick because he's in a rather precarious position right now. Is it a civil war? Is it treason? Uh, whatever other, is it, you know, a coup d'etat by the deep, deep state? Let's just throw out all these accusations and see if any of them gain, you know, popular support, you know? Um, we are not on the eve of a civil war. We, uh, we have a deeply divided political system, but we have had that many times in our history. Go back to the 1790s. Uh, look at what they said about George Washington. I'm not, you know, hey, he's about as upstanding as you can get. His opponents condemned him as a British agent and all this, and Jefferson was a, uh, well, they were right about that, sleep, <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, whatever. They had a lot of things to say about Jefferson also. But... Um, you know, so, but we're not in a civil war, but we are in a very divisive uh, moment. And, uh, of course, it's being um, encouraged uh, ra rapidly from uh, uh, pow the powers uh, that be. But I tend to be an optimist, and I feel, uh, you know, the one law of all history, the one thing that is true of, at all times in history is this too will pass, right? Yes, absolutely. So that's how I maintain my optimism at the moment. So does Trump remind you of Andrew Johnson? I used to think Andrew Johnson was the worst president we've had. <laughs> um, but uh, he's getting a run for his money right now. <laughs> um, you know, in, uh, obviously, Andrew Johnson was the first president to be impeached by the House. He was, he, the Senate fell one vote short of convicting him, although that's a little misleading because his, basically his lawyers... Sat, the, the Republican Party controlled the Senate, and they could easily have removed him, and they were fed up with Andrew Johnson for a thousand good reasons. Uh, but they were a little nervous about the impeachment process, and basically his lawyer, William Everett, another important New Yorker, promised, look, I promise you if you, don't, if you don't convict him, he will behave himself from now on. He will not try to obstruct Reconstruction. He will not violate the law. He will not encourage violence. He's only got about eight more months in office anyway, 
Um, and by the way, that's what happened. Johnson kind of shut up after being uh, uh, acquitted. And, and reconstruction went forward without his obstructionism, which had been very acute up to that point. Uh, they could have removed him, and probably if he had started obstructing Reconstruction, they would have impeached him again and then really gotten rid of him. So uh, it's not like today, and uh, whether impeachment is a good idea is a political question, which people can all debate. But, um, you know, uh, my only fear is it makes it impossible to get anything else accomplished. Not that much was being accomplished anyway, but, uh, you know, there are rather pressing issues facing this country, and yet if everybody is talking impeachment all the time, we won't be somehow thinking about all these other things. Okay, I think I'm getting a signal here that our time is up. I have one more question. Qu I'm so glad, because this is actually quite a good question. Um, the, the Union paid so dearly for the Civil War. Why did they allow it to be undone by the redemption? That's a very good question. Uh, 750,000 deaths, right? Uh, most of them Union, although Confederacy also, of course, a very large number of deaths. Uh, many, many other disastrous things. Um, you know, uh, I think a certain... There's two things. One is a certain exhaustion sets in after a while, a desire for normalcy. Mm -hmm. You don't want the crisis... Once the war is over, you don't want the crisis to continue. You might almost say the White South outlasted the North in terms of just being willing to resist, resist the resist, and Northerners finally, eventually, many lost the will to, uh, to oppose that. Um, but also, a, a civil war is a little different than other wars, because the purpose of a civil war is to bring the country back together. So it was all, whatever the Reconstruction policy and whatever the specifics of the constitutional amendments the long-term aim was to have the South back in as a functioning equal part of the society. Um, they tried to put, you know, fences around what the South could do. They put it in the Constitution. They passed laws. Like, for example, there's a case in Mississippi right now. When Mississippi was readmitted, they passed laws saying Mississippi can never, you know... Um, can never reduce the educational system they've just established in Reconstruction. Well, people are suing in Mississippi today saying that's being violated because education is so horrible in Mississippi that they're violating that law requiring an adequate education for everybody. But it's pretty difficult to enforce it now. So they tried to make sure that these governments would act properly, but in the end, uh, the, the mechanisms for absolutely ensuring it were very difficult. You, you couldn't really have an long-term military occupation of the South. That is not in concert with the notion of a democratic society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to take Mississippi some time. Uh, they, <laughs> they ratified the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery in 1995. Right, so, they finally uh, got around to it. Exactly. They uh, did, uh, they did uh, uh, yeah, and the reason they didn't ratify it in 1865, they, the legislature said, was because the, they were afraid that Congress would, quote, legislate on the Negro question. Mm. That is to say that the abolition of slavery gave Congress the power to protect the rights of these people, which it did, and they did legislate on the Negro question very quickly. But they were already thinking about how, how are we going to maintain control here even though slavery's been abolished, and they didn't want to 
open the door to, uh, you know, this, we're not going to ratify this amendment unless Congress absolutely says they're never going to do anything against us again, which they weren't willing to uh, quite say, right? Right, but. right. So thank you so much for this uh, wonderful conversation. Thank and you, Manisha. thank you for the questions. Um... Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.